0: Good, good stuff. (laughs) So a couple of announcements. One, at 2 o'clock today are the relays. You need to grab your teams of four and show up out there on the tab field. Be there promptly, please. Uh, Don't leave your places at 2, be there at 2. And uh, we will get started there. And then at 2.15, I know you're going to have to make a decision, at 2.15 here in the tabernacle is the hymn sing with Lou Tibbetts leading the singing and some testimony time. And uh, Deb Ackerman will be on the uh, piano, and it will be a real fun time going on in here as well. Some people are saying, oh, man, I want to do both. And I know it, but you're going to have to make a decision. Um, the other thing is is I need four volunteers. I don't. Sarah Brooks NEEDS FOUR VOLUNTEERS DOWN IN OUR CHILDREN'S END ON uh, TONIGHT DURING THE WORSHIP SERVICE. COULD I SEE FOUR HANDS THAT ARE SAYING, YEP, YOU CAN COUNT ON ME TO BE DOWN THERE TONIGHT? GOT ONE? ALL RIGHT. ALL RIGHT, THEN THE REST OF YOU WILL JUST HAVE TO SEE IF I APPROACH YOU AND ASK YOU FACE-TO-FACE. AND THAT'S OKAY, BUT I KNOW SOME HAVE ALREADY VOLUNTEERED, AND IF IT'S A NO FROM YOU, There is zero guilt attached to that, okay? The Lord will raise up who needs to be in there, and it'll work out just fine. Um, I think those were the only announcements that we had. So are you ready to learn? Are you ready to teach? We'll see. (laughs) He's ready. (laughs) He's ready. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, you again have called us to this place, that you have called a teacher to this place, and that we are all here learning. But God, it is not enough to just be educated. It is so much more than just knowing what it means to be a disciple. It's so much more than knowing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We actually need to do it. We need to walk in it, and we need to step into it, and we need to apply the uh, truth of your word into our lives and continue to live it out daily. And so, God, I hope and I pray that every heart in this place would uh, be challenged today, challenged to to walk more closely with you, to follow you more dearly and to love nearly and to love you more dearly. God, there is a never-ending supply of what you have to offer us and we never attain walking close enough, we can just tuck in tight and listen to you and obey your ways and follow your ways. And so, God, I pray that as as we learn how to make disciples, that we're being challenged and taught here how to really be a disciple, not in the way that we have thought, but in the way that your word teaches. So we're going to trust you to continue to teach us today through blake thank you for his willingness thank you for pouring into him now that he may pour back out to us we are ready to listen we are here to learn and uh, we are excited about what you're going to do within us in this next hour or so and we give you all praise and glory for what you're about to do in jesus name amen
1: amen thank you and thank you, Camp, for being here again this morning. I understand that you have uh, options. I know they've structured our lives here pretty carefully. Uh, but you and I both know you can choose and go where you want to go. And so I counted a gift that you have chosen to be here this morning. Thank you for that. We have been talking about living the Great Commission. Living the Great Commission. And we began by taking a look at Jesus' last words on earth. Uh, to his disciples, to you and me, to the church. He said, go make disciples. And in that first session, uh, we tried to establish that that has often been interpreted as go make converts. And I offered to you some evidence, I hope, uh, compelling enough for you to have come to the conclusion that making converts and making disciples is not the same thing. And then I tried to help us to see that as we go make disciples, we do that as we are going along our normal pathway. It's not, a, it's not an add-on. It's not something else that I'm trying to talk you into doing. It's as we go about our daily lives, uh, let us make disciples. Uh, yesterday, then, we looked at one thing that we do as we go, and that is to pray. As you go make disciples, pray. And I suggested just one approach uh, to prayer, the acts of prayer. Uh, there are a whole lot of others. Obviously, I hope you took away not only uh, the acts, but also the fact that we are called to pray persistently for those that we would, be, uh, would become disciples. Uh, it's all right to be a bit impudent, just to be bold and ask God to change the lives of people uh, that we would be disciples. And, and then we tried to close with the notion of partnership that praying in partnership, praying with other folks as we join in partnership with God is the key to successful prayer. Uh, This morning, then, I want to challenge our thinking uh, with a a new uh, concept, uh, as you go, serve. Not a new concept, it's thousands of years old, but new to our study, as you go, serve. From the pages of Greek mythology comes the fascinating story of Echo and Narcissus. According to the legend, uh, Echo was a beautiful young lady of the forest, and she was madly in love with a very handsome Narcissus. Of course, that really wasn't all that unusual because all the maidens of the forest were madly in love with Narcissus. But Echo was operating at a bit of a handicap. For you see, Echo could not formulate any words of her own. In fact, all she could do was repeat that which she had heard. So how in the world was Echo ever going to let Narcissus know of her great affection for him? She followed him through the forest, and one day, against all odds, she got her opportunity. Narcissus heard a rustling in the bush and he called out, who's there? To which Echo was now able to respond, who's there, who's there, who's there? Startled, Narcissus demanded, come to me. Why, sweeter words had never been spoken. Uh, Echo ran out from behind the bush where she was hiding toward the startled Narcissus exclaiming, come to me, come to me, come to me. Well, if you know that ancient myth, you know that Narcissus spurned her affection. He would have nothing to do with Echo. In fact, she went off into the mountains, and they say if you listen carefully, on a clear, crisp morning, you'll still hear her. She'll call back to you if you call her, for Echo is still pining away her love off in the mountains." Narcissus, on the other hand, and what he had done, displeased the gods, according to the legend, and so they devised the most cruel possible punishment. They said that Narcissus would never, ever love again, except that he might love himself. And so, as Narcissus walked through the woods, he came upon a clear, still pool where he saw a reflection of himself. And Narcissus fell madly in love with himself. All the beautiful maids of the forest did everything they could to try to draw his attention away from that pool. But nothing worked. Narcissus only had eyes for himself, according to the Greek legend. Now, it's from that ancient Greek legend that we get a very modern English word, narcissism. Narcissism is a craving for admiration, an excessive interest in the self. There are some folks who, like Narcissus of old, uh, are narcissists in a physical sense. Uh, read an article just the other day about a woman who had taken down all of the pictures in her apartment and replace them with mirrors so that as she moved pla- from place to place in the apartment she could admire herself. But more frequently than physical attraction in our day narcissism has come to mean uh, an excessive interest in our own ideas, our own way of doing things. I mean you really ought to see my point of view. Because my point of view is all that's really important. In fact, the whole world revolves around me, according to the narcissist. And the experts say that you and I are a part of the most narcissistic culture that has ever existed on planet Earth. Now, how do they come to that kind of startling conclusion? Well, some of it's speculation, no question about it but there are some instruments that are used one of them is called the npi stands for narcissistic personality inventory npi and you can take npi you can take the test it's uh, it's 40 pairs and you have to choose which of those is most true for you right now and then you can find it online you can find it sometimes in the sunday edition uh, if you still get printed newspapers And uh, NPI will give you a score, uh, tell you what your narcissistic tendencies might be. Uh, We know, for example, that the average American scores about 15.4 on NPI. The average college student scores about 17.5 on NPI. And the uh, the average celebrity, people who make their money Selling themselves, in effect, they don't produce anything; they just entertain others. Scores about 19 and a half, and we also know that the narcissistic personality inventories of average Americans has been rapidly and steadily increasing over the last several years. There's evidence that we are the most narcissistic people that have ever existed. Why? What is there about being a 21st century American that would make us also so narcissistic? Well, the experts don't agree. Uh, They have several theories. One of those theories is that our rugged individualism as American people has gone to seed in about 250 years. And what was a really good idea, the individual being in charge of their own lives and their own government, has now become a narcissistic idea. You see, most of us have long since forgotten that the American way is a grand experiment. Uh, The truth of the matter is, uh, we are one of very, very few places that have ever existed that have thought of the possibility that the government might work for me instead of me working for the government. Or that the basic building block uh, of of human life is the individual. That's an American idea. Uh, Southeast Asia, it's the family led by the father, a paternalistic family uh, that is the basic building block of the culture. I, I worked with a young lady some years ago uh, who was in her 30, a brilliant young lady, by the way, a PhD in public relations, several articles, working on books, had managed her own PR firm in addition to being a gifted teacher. And I said to her one day, like old men always talk to kids, you know, I said to her one day, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Well, you know, when I ask my students that, that is American students that, I get their dreams and their goals and their aspirations. They're going to do this and this and this. You know what her answer was? My father says that I will be very good. And she went ahead and told me what she was going to do. She came from a different kind of culture where the basic building block of culture is not individualism, It's the paternalistic family. My kids serve in Africa, uh, Uganda primarily, where the basic building block of culture is the tribe. So you do whatever's necessary in support of the tribe. It's not about me. It's about the tribe. All of that to say, is it possible? Uh, And I'm not ready to give up on the American dream, so when we get to questions and answers kind of stuff, you don't need to try to get me converted back to being a real American. (laughs) No, not at all. But is it possible, that in 250 years of this grand experiment, that we've gone too far in our individualistic thinking? A second possibility, when we ask the experts, why are we so narcissistic? They say, well, it's pop culture. That's the reason. There are a couple of theories here. Uh, you right-brained people know more about this, I hope, than I do. Bear with me just a minute. But the reality is, there's a debate in, in art in music in literature does the culture is the culture reflected by the art or is the culture led by the art and uh, there are different differences of opinion different ways of looking the one time that i forayed into writing a novel i wrote a book called terry's gift and it's uh, it's about it's politics and it's about what I uh, fear is going to happen if we continue with this obsession uh, to universal health care in America, one-payer kind of health care. And I sent it to a friend of mine who's very, very gifted artist. He's, he's written several things. He was married to a young lady who, who was on the New York Times bestseller list at the time, and they looked at my book and gave me advice and, and helped to clean it up. And then Neil said to me, I hesitate to even help you because I'm afraid That the art leads the culture, and where this story is going is not where I want us to go. Well, that's what you get the idea. Is it possible that what you watch on television, what you read, the sports figures that you admire and are your heroes, is it possible that they're fueling your own narcissism? Is it possible that America has become a narcissistic culture because of those folks that we admire and lead? Here's where I think it's at, frankly. It's called the self-esteem movement. Back in the 1960s, education changed. We used to say that education was about teaching people reading, writing, and arithmetic. And then in the 60s, educators hit on a great idea. Why don't we also teach little Johnny and little Janie to feel good about themselves? Now that's a pretty good idea. I want little John and little Janie to feel good about themselves, but the experts are now asking: Is it possible that after that many years of the self-esteem movement, we have begun to create a narciss- narcissism movement rather than self-esteem? Let me hasten to hurry to, to suggest: Narcissism and self-esteem are not the same thing. You can have a very, very low self-esteem and be a narcissist. Oh, they're all looking at me. They're, they're, they're expecting me to teach them something. I don't, I don't I don't know enough to have 100 people in the same room looking at me. I I'm, I'm this is not good. I, you all are smiling like I said something stupid and I didn't even I haven't even gotten started yet. And I, I, you see what I'm talking about? It's all about me 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 but very low self-esteem. So it's possible to have a high self-esteem and not be a narcissist. What we're asking is, have we gotten those mixed up as we've tried to help little Johnny and little Janie feel good about themselves? Uh, Nancy Substitute teaches, gets in a lot of different elementary school classrooms. And some time ago, she was in the classroom with a kindergartner. Hear me, this is so important. This is so, it's unbelievable. You won't believe it a kindergartner who was misbehaving through the course of the day. And at some point, Nancy, and she'd probably be the first to admit this and the best way to deal with it, but at some point she said to little Johnny, why can't you just sit down and behave like the other boys and girls? And he said, oh, that's easy. I'm not like the other boys and girls. I'm way ahead of the rest of these kids. Kindergartner. My dad says I'd probably be in college if the system wasn't holding me back. Close enough? (laughs) And she came home and told me that story. I thought, what is wrong with that dad? What is wrong with this guy that he would tell a kid something like? You know what's wrong with him? He's bought into the notion that his child's self-esteem is the most important thing in that child's life. He's bought into the, listen to me, the nonsense that you can be anything you wanna be. He's told his son that lie. You can't be anything you wanna be. If you're four foot eleven and can't jump, you will not make it in the NBA. Give it up, get a different goal. If you cannot carry a tune in the basket, you sing like Neth, you are not going to sing in Carnegie Hall. Nobody will listen. Find a new goal. You can't be anything you wanna be. But we have gotten so carried away with helping our little boys and girls become good, high self-esteem achievers that we've created little narcissists in the process. A great book, and I tried to think this morning when at 9 o'clock the Lord reworked everything we're doing today in terms of order and some in terms of content. I tried to remember the the author of the book, and I can't, some of you, If you're online, can probably find it. I wasn't online, couldn't find it. But the title of the book is, Not Everyone Gets a Trophy. And the idea is that we have, in order to help little Johnny and little Janie feel good, created, thank you, thank you, amazing. We'll talk about technology in just a minute, but Nevertheless. Uh, the idea of the book is, th- this guy's coming at it from a management point of view, so those of you who hire people, lead people, uh, or manage people, I really, really recommend the book. But as a background to the book, he's suggesting that the workforce in America today grew up a- in a time frame when everybody gets a trophy. You just, sh- you just show up and play in the game, and you're a winner because you're here. And uh, everybody, cl- I remember when I went over to Circleville, and watch my grandson play basketball in that league where everybody gets a trophy. And he came off the floor, and I said louder than I should have. I incurred the ire of several parents. I said, you're all a bunch of losers. <laughs> what? What do you mean, Pat? I said, you didn't keep score. You're all a bunch of losers. You got it? How are we going to teach our kids how to lose? How will we teach... Men and women, how will we teach boys and girls how to live? Anyway, I'm getting carried away with social science, and we got to get to the word. But here's the reality: it's possible that that self-esteem movement has gotten off track, derailed, and is creating a little narcissists instead of high self-esteem. And then fourth, some believe, some of the experts believe that it's social media. I don't, I don't agree with them. And and here's part of the reason: I am not anti-technology. Technology is what allows me to to visit with my granddaughters in Uganda and see them face to face. So I'm not anti-technology. But I do wonder about a world where we talk with our thumbs and where our world has become smaller and smaller and smaller so that we can see it on a little screen in front of my face and the person behind it is arguing that my world is bigger because I can talk to folks across the ponds. That's a weird world at best. And is it possible that when I can post something and see what folks think, and if I don't get enough likes, I just take it down and post something else, is it possible that I'm fueling my own narcissism? I don't want to debate that because I'm not qualified to debate that this morning, uh, but just for your thoughts. Here's what I do know some characteristics of narcissists. Keep in mind, we are the most narcissistic culture that has existed at least for a long, long time, and social science experts say forever, although that's some conjecture. Here's what we know. Narcissists confuse admiration with love. And so if you say to a narcissist, wow, that's a really cool shirt, uh, the narcissist thinks you're in love with him or her. Uh, This is extreme narcissism, no question about it. But narcissists can't make that distinction, and so church, as we're talking to people about loving one another, uh, uh, they they can't go where you and I go in terms of loving. They can't go where Jesus went in terms of laying down their lives, or, uh, our lives, because the reality is it's all about admiration. Second, narcissists are not capable of compassion. Uh, broad statement, but here's how we d- here's how it was tested. You give people the NPI narcissistic personality inventory and you give them a paper and pencil test that measures compassion at the same time and what we have discovered is the higher you are on mpi the lower you are on compassion so the more you're into you the more you're into self the more that you believe the world somehow revolves around you the less the more difficult it is to reach out to somebody else who is hurting and to care about that person narcissists enjoy conflict and conquest That's the only way they can prove their superiority. And so narcissists are constantly stirring something up in the workplace, in the classroom, in the home, in the church. Narcissists live by conflict and conquest. It's what makes them who they are. Narcissists cannot imagine being wrong. The way to approach narcissism is not to say to people, the way you've been thinking about this, folks, is not right. Let me give you a new way of thinking about it. They cannot imagine being wrong. And so their defenses go up. Narcissists are always right. You just ask them. They'll tell you. Narcissists apply the rules unilaterally. My illustration of this isn't going to play nearly as well here as it does in a college classroom. But let me try it anyway. So you're trying to date a narcissist. And the narcissist says, we're not going to date other people, right? And what the narcissist means is, you're not going to date other people, right? I'm going to date whoever I want to date. And what young people are telling me who are in those dating dating years and dating relationships is, you nailed it, Neff. I can't believe it. You're 66, and you know what's going on out here. The reality is, narcissists always apply rules unilaterally. Now, let me lay, really go out on a limb. I prayed, pleaded with the Lord about this about 9 o'clock this morning. Is it possible that some of our holiness tradition needs to hear some of that? That we have applied the rules of holy living to everybody else and not to ourselves? Is it possible that some of the guilt that we have created in the lives of Christian people is because we have a narcissistic tendency within the system? Well, I'll leave, that to, I'll leave that to you because I don't want to deal with it. But here's what I would like to do. I'd like to explore, ask you to explore, and then we'll come back and talk about it in just a little bit. Three passages of Scripture where I think now that I've warmed you up a little bit to it, you'll see some narcissism. And you will also see the antidote or the solution to narcissism. And so I'm going to ask you in, uh, what I'm going to do is divide you into three segments, one, two, three, and ask you within your little segment to find uh, three to five people again. Three to five folks give everybody an opportunity to express themselves, but somebody to get lost if they need to. So find, find enough folks to make a group of three to five. And if you're in this section over here, look at Luke 9, 46 to 50. And I'll come back in just a moment, Luke 9, 46 to 50. I'll come back in just a moment with a couple of questions I'd like you to address in your small group. If you're in this section right over here, will you look at Mark 10, 35 to 45? And again, three to five people in your group, open the Word, spend some time around Mark 10, 35 to 45, and I'll give you some discussion questions. And then if you're in this group, the chosen folks, uh, I'd like for you to take a look at John 13. Where there's a fabulous fabulous passage uh verses 1 to 15 that some of you already know uh oh i know where this is going and see see what you see about narcissism and the solutions here's what i want you to look for in all of your groups are there evidences of narcissism in this passage Uh, you may want to spend just a couple of minutes arguing with me about narcissism and whether we're there as a people and so on and so on but please don't get bogged down there Are there evidences of narcissism as I have defined it in this passage? And second, are there solutions to narcissism in this passage? What do we do? I mean, this is the culture in which God has put us. So what do we do now that we're in this culture? How are we going to make disciples of these narcissists that the Lord has commanded us to go make disciples of that you might come to as you look at those solutions? Questions about that? Find a group, and let's take uh, 10, 15 minutes and work in your group on those two questions, and then Ellen's going to facilitate a microphone movement, and we're going to see what we can do uh, to hear from all of the groups. What's it say about somebody who, when they're asked to get in a group, say, "I don't want to talk to groups. I know more about this than they do anyway. Get in a group. Will you? Perhaps? Uh, I told you that this all got reworked in the last hour before I came to class, and the evidence of that is I didn't have Nancy didn't have time to have Nancy proofreaded. it. I know there are two different words for there, and they ought to be the same one, but I didn't know which one. So, no, I really do know which one. I have no idea how that happened. Anyway, let's start with this uh, this group who looked at uh, uh, Luke nine, right? Y'all, yeah, yeah. So, somebody uh, who's uh, has high self-esteem, doesn't really matter whether you're a narcissist or not, Uh, would you uh, stand up real loud, uh, read the passage for us so everybody else knows what it is you looked at? Who will will read for us? Please? There's one back there. Thank you. We're, We're bringing a mic for you. An argument started
2: among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he is not one of us.
1: Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. All right, now, those of you in this section... Teach these folks in this section, because they haven't looked at this passage now. What would you all talk about here? What, are there evidences of narcissism in this passage? Yep. What do you think? Yes? Where are they? The evidences uh, that we saw was, first of all, the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. Okay. And uh, second evidence is, uh, should they uh, stop that person from uh, uh, proclaiming, um, uh, casting out demons? And so they're saying that, well,
3: we're the only ones that really have that authority, so right. shouldn't we be the ones stepping in and right. saying, stop
1: it? Yeah, so so there's a couple of things going on here. One, the disciples saying, well, "I'm, I'm a better disciple than you are. I'm a greater disciple than you, and I'm supposed to make disciples, so I'm gonna brag you a lot. You know, we gotta be careful about this disciple-making thing lest we fit into that kind of trap. And then there's this other uh, category of uh, ecclesiastical narcissism, if you will, where there's this debate about how to do church, how to do kingdom work. Uh, They were casting out demons and didn't even do it the way you taught us to, Jesus. Uh, Do we ever see any of that uh, in churches today? Uh, I would argue that we do. I think we're some of the most narcissistic folks around. Uh, My church, my pew, my music, my way of doing things, my pastor. You know, it's, it's, it's not kingdom language, it seems to me. So, yeah, you you nailed them. Did anyone, s- uh, are there others, other groups? So, w- w- what are the evidences of narcissism in this passage? Are there also solutions to narcissism in the passage? What would you see? Back here. She'll help us. Um,
0: I think when Jesus brings out the example of the child, okay. um, just somebody with the, the um, purest um, love for, for Jesus, someone who's capable of just having a pure love for Jesus without um, boundaries or separations from any, anybody else. Like, that was the example. Uh-huh. Um, what, you know. is
1: there, what is there about children that, that would cause us to put them in a category of anti-narcissism? For, for here's the reason I'm asking the question, Mom. Uh, I don't have to tell you, kids are born narcissistic, you know, uh, right? Uh, they don't wake up in the middle of the night and say, well, I don't guess I'll bother mom. I, I can eat in the morning. No, I want it now. It's my world. This whole thing's working around me. Come feed me now, right? Right. Yeah, and yet, I, I'm with you. I, I agree with you. I think, and that's what I want you all to see in this passage, Jesus seems to be holding up this child as the solution to this I am the greatest mentality that he sees in his disciples. Thoughts? Where did that come from? Anybody? She's looking at me like, don't do this to me, so you do it.
2: Uh, I had an example
0: of...
1: Thank you. Yeah, that'll help. I've got a four-year-old child
4: and the other day that um, we were were playing, he was standing on a step and he stepped up like two or three steps up there and said, hey
2: daddy, catch me.
4: He had no thought that I wouldn't catch him. He had no I and mean, he, he just knew that, hey, daddy,
1: catch me, and I would do anything I could, you know, rushing across the room, whatever, to catch him. He had that kind of faith. and, and that uh, Okay, yeah, I, that, know, that always, element I of trust of. is yeah, part of what is. Jesus is holding up when he holds up that child. Way in the back, Ellen's going to lose 10 pounds over the course of this week. <laughs> just keep
4: <Sure>. just keep <laughs> <laughs> so another side to the welcoming the child idea of just that, children, just knowing a little bit about the culture, but children in that culture were totally rejected. Like they weren't supposed to be around, especially adults, especially rabbis and teachers. And so Jesus is maybe saying that you welcome those people who are rejected, and that's another way you can come back.
1: Good. Thank you. Over here.
5: Um, As much as children
0: it's our selfish in needing your attention when when they're crying you get their they get your attention for sure but also they are very very dependent on others around them a child could not survive you know you have an animal that a, a baby can take off and survive on their own pretty quickly but we know as human children they take a lot of years of dependency and nurturing. Okay. And I think maybe that is partly what Jesus is trying to get at. We need, we as believers need to be dependent and nurtured in the Lord and in Christ and in looking to Scripture.
1: Good. Yeah. Whoever whoever will be the greatest, he said, must be the least. I, I, I was thinking about the dependence thing. I, I'm, I'm with you on the trust thing. I'm also wondering about just that basic humility that says uh, okay jesus what what do you want me to do next Uh, i don't i don't see that in adult classes do you it's like uh, convince me lord show me um and yet little children seem to be there seems to be an element of humility in in a child that that we would benefit from please
0: i think a lot of times children are moldable and they're teachable. Um, they're willing to see things, un- of seeing another way of doing things. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not so ingrained in no, we always do it this way or I never play this game or I never you know, play with this person. Um, they're open to a new idea or a new game or you know, new friends, they're more moldable and teachable. You mean you've seen churches
1: that aren't open to new ideas? <laughs> huh. Wow. Good stuff. Thank you. Let's move. Let's see. I went here next. Is that true? Did you all look at Mark 10? Mark 10, 35 to 45. Who will read it for us? I got a couple of volunteers. Ellen, which one's closest to you? All right. Real loud for us, please. Oh, well, she's getting a microphone. That wasn't necessary.
5: 35 to 45. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and one on the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know. What you are asking, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, Lord, it's over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant." And whoever of you desires to be the first shall be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served, and to give his life, as a ransom for many.
1: Amen. Thank you, thank you. So, where'd y'all go with that, groups? What are the evidences of narcissism in this passage, and what are the solutions or the antidotes? Well, yeah. and John. Uh, yeah, they.
2: They said, hey. Jesus loved us more than you guys, so the rest, the other ten guys get lost.
1: Somehow I'm entitled to the place on yeah, the right Yeah, the I left. mean, uh,
2: uh, we're it for, as far as Jesus is concerned, the rest of you are yep. just here.
1: Okay, good. I don't think that's the only place we see narcissism, up here in the front row. Please.
2: found it pretty interesting when... Uh, the rest of the disciples, after hearing this, they were indignant, which shows also that not only were James and John, you know, considered narcissistic in this situation, but as well as everyone else, because they all were thinking the same thing, like, Yeah, what about me, you know, hey, Jesus, over here, don't leave me out, you know. <laughs>
1: there, there's a sense here, it seems to me, in which the other disciples are not willing to Hear me now. Maybe I need you to hear my heart, not my words. I'm not sure I can do this right. But they're not willing to let Jesus bring the correction. They got to bring it. Let me tell you what's wrong with you. And let me help you get it right. And I wonder if sometimes our narcissism in the church isn't veiled in a kind of super spirituality. We don't trust the Holy Spirit to do the Holy Spirit's work we got to go do it for the Spirit all too frequently. I went to preach and sorry. But its it seems to me that that's built into this passage uh, in a profound way. Are there solutions in this one? I think so. What did you find?
3: So I believe the solution is in the last few verses. Um, not so with you instead. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Yeah, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Yeah. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So taking that, uh, being selfless, and I took the example of when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and... He'll he'll, he'll repent. Go ahead. <laughs> and how it was... No, it's your fine. Go. Uh, and how it was... Um, Just something that, like, literally a servant would do that. Okay. A servant
1: of that person's house would wash those feet just because it's so disgusting. And here he's laying out a general principle that the greatest will be the the least. You need to Mm -hmm. be a servant. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need to serve in order to be number one in the kingdom. Exactly. And uh, servanthood and narcissism don't seem to go together very well.
3: Yeah. Uh, First of all, we're going to
1: have a hard time making disciples in this culture. Among people who have been trained to believe they're number one. Yeah. Uh, that's that's part of what I wanted you So What else did you see in this passage that we, w-
5: yeah, About work. Sorry. About uh yes, you can have the leadership, but you're going to be baptized with what I'm going to be baptized with. Isn't that the crucifixion? Mm-hmm. And of course, they were all martyred, were they not? Okay. Except John. Yeah. But all the rest of them were martyred. All the, so all he the says, "Okay, you want to be first, but you got to pay a price." Yeah, good. Thank you.
1: I was just going to say, also, to add to that, to die to self. Yeah, um, like Christ died for us. Uh, we, we need to good, die to self. Do you hear the words, church words, but well spoken? You got to die to self. Teach that to a narcissist. Yeah. How, how you go about that? You see, you see the, what I want you to see. Uh, on the one hand, as we go live the Great Commission, we are now going to live the Great Commission among people who have such a st- startlingly different worldview uh, that it, it that it's challenging just to get them to understand our point of view. And now, what we've unlocked on Monday is this: Jesus didn't just say, "Go show them a different worldview." He said, "Go make disciples." What a challenge he's laid down before us I- in the kind of culture in which we live. What else? Yes. Sorry, Ellen.
0: Okay. <laughs> I just thought about this, too. It's kind of ironic that they had this narcissistic personality come out when all along they were like the lowest career choices. I mean, we got tax collectors. Hmm. We've got all these group of guys that, Really are pretty low on the totem pole culturally, and here they are taking on the airs now of this.
1: Right, yeah, that's interesting, fascinating. Almost like when they walked with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it did elevate them, and we certainly agree with that and believe that. And yet Jesus is trying to put a cap on that for them. I don't know where I I don't want to go there. I'm not just sure how how to bring all that together. But fascinating insight. Thank you for it. Mike went to somebody over
0: here yeah it's kind of been my observation to see that the, the, the people that end up being really effective leaders are not necessarily the ones saying here I'll do it I'll do it they they're the ones that that know what it entails and are are humble enough to to uh, realize that they can't do it by themselves that was a couple of points that we talked about here in our group was the humility and the teamwork that needs to go i can't do this by myself i need to have other believers help me
1: there really are are two biblical model at least two biblical models for leadership and one is what you just articulated the reluctant leader and we see that in moses who who is called to leadership at the burning bush and said no not me uh-uh no way i don't have what it takes I mean, as anti-narcissism as anybody you can find, I think, in the Scripture. And yet God took him and gave him the gifts and graces that he was going to need to get the job done, and he did a remarkable work for the kingdom. The other model, uh, Steve Deneff recently called it the assertive leader. I think there's a better term, but I haven't found it yet. And who am I to question Steve? So at any rate, is is David, uh, who is out there as a kid going, what's the matter with the rest of you guys? I'll take the giant. Ain't no big deal because he's following the Lord and he's trusting the Lord. I did a bear. I did a lion. I'll do that big guy. No big. So you got two different uh, models of leadership. I appreciate what you're saying. The one I think is kind of where I'm reeling this morning, but the other is very biblical as well. So we, we need to look at both of them. Uh, that's a th- good point. She's saying, in David's case, it's not self-confidence, it's God-confidence, and that makes us more, more capable in terms of leadership. Yeah?
2: A lot of time in the church, uh, okay. we hear people say, whatever I do, I play to win. Uh, and that's not good. That is good. Uh, I played sports. I played sports where I took a team. And I always wanted to be on a team with uh, team players. Make it. You know, you played hard as a team together, and you rejoiced when the game was over. And I learned so much in that, in ministry, because we're out to win. And uh, how do you do this? You pick a team who are out to win, because you know our opponent needs to be defeated.
1: I hear. I hear you at a cosmic level and agree with you. I also know there are people in the room who have lost that and what? suffered and struggled. Have lost and struggled and suffered. But put those together for us.
2: Yeah, it, it's pie in the sky to win everything. Uh, but you, just because you lost, uh, this didn't happen, and we give it our all.
1: Yeah, I, I think the way we put it together is, is in terms of time, isn't it? You know, th- th- there is coming a time when we are all going to be victorious. You know, the streets of gold, the victory in Jesus is not uh, is not a myth. It's the reality of the Christian life. But I also don't want us to go there like the church has for, for too long and leave behind sisters and brothers in the room who are struggling and who are suffering and we are saying, what do I do with that struggle and that suffering right now?
2: Here at camp, uh, uh, God just blessed, and uh, there was so much done because we had a, a group of people who would just give what they had to give to make it happen. Right. Uh, one particular thing we were after, I was after, was some property. And uh, I had done all the groundwork, and it was going to happen. Right. And I came home from the board meeting, my wife said, "Lou." how did it go I said it was voted down and she said you gotta feel terrible I said uh, I wanted it but we've got a board here who you know they're all about the right stuff and just because it didn't happen the way I wanted it didn't make them a bad board all of a sudden
1: right right perfect moment and and, uh, you'll see why in just a moment for me to transition to this last group and I'll come back if you didn't get it all out or if there are other things to say I'm not I'm not scared of that topic I don't have the answer but I'm not scared but I really want us to hear from this third group of people because I think I think what you were bringing to our attention is the sovereignty of God and that is so prominent in what these folks read in John 13 1 to 15 go
6: Jesus Jesus washes his disciples feet it was just before the passover festival Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you.
1: Thank you. Where'd y'all go with that? Uh, Yeah.
4: Well, for the most part, we were dealing with Peter and Jesus, and since Peter's never wrong, we knew Jesus had to be the narcissist one. <laughs>
1: Class this, <dismissed>. man. <Yeah. laughs> I can't go there. No, go but
4: it's. I, th- I think that was the main one we came up with, uh, not only here, but lots of other texts, that Peter can't imagine being wrong. Right. Um. And so we saw that here. That's true. And, and yeah. so kind of almost like correcting Jesus again. Well, wait a minute. You're doing it wrong. Right.
1: Um. And so... Uh, And of course, and there's compelling evidence, not just in this passage, but from Peter's confession, "Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God," all the way to his uh, denial, that Peter's trying to work through. What does it mean to be a Messiah? I I got it right, didn't I? You're a Messiah, Uh, and so you picked up on a piece of that. I think absolutely right. What else? This this passage, I okay, back there. I got help. Hurry, hurry.
4: It was pretty exciting when we opened this scripture because on Saturday night, when Matt Hook spoke, he spoke about the towel being the tool that we Christians can use and the humility of washing feet. Uh But, um, you know, Peter was, in our opinion, the narcissist, of course, because it was going to be his way. I'm going to do this. I can never, ever be so humble as to, you know, let Jesus wash my feet. And yet, um, as Matt pointed out Saturday night, it it was how much Jesus
1: loved them
4: that he pushed it. And the The other other thing I just wanted to add. Verse
1: 35 or 36, because he loved them is why this passage comes. Go.
4: Love is a solution. But the other thing was an attitude of a group. If Peter, you know, was such a, a... vibrant leader as he was his attitude of not doing what Jesus was asking it could be contagious and I I transfer that to if we have someone in a large group doing something other than what Jesus would ask we have to be so careful of having that be a contagious attitude to go against against the will of God
1: Okay, good thank you what are the yes right here R- we're going to the front now, Ellen.
0: <laughs> we oh sh- also
3: looked a little bit, just kind of briefly at the end, got cut off, but we were talking about uh, Judas. And the he sat through all of that, and yet he still went out and did what he was going to do, that he was so intent on his own thoughts and his own ways that he didn't get the lesson yeah. um, at that in that time. Yeah.
1: And yet, on the other hand, uh, I believe the Lord knew what Judas was about. It's, it's clear from other, other gospels. And uh, yet, there's clear evidence that he washed Judas' feet. And as we go about living the Great Commission, uh, the, the Jesus did not wait for those folks to be worthy before he knelt down in front of them and washed their feet. That's part of what I wanted you all to see.
2: Well, exactly what is being said in
1: the yeah. Can you hear? Still one unclean, he's saying, even though I've washed the feet of all of you. Okay. There's... Oh, he okay okay Judas, yeah. Judas he's lifting up Judas as the ultimate narcissist here, even to control the way he died. That is, he went out and hanged himself. Yeah, did I did I yeah. read? Yeah, very good. What I wanted y'all to see in this, and where I wanted us to go together, uh, three things. One, Jesus, this is not about dirty feet. Uh, this is not about dirty feet. There, there's a greater teaching here. And if we get locked in to the foot washing uh, debate, uh, we miss it. Before the, before the account is even unfolded, we find in verse, uh, hang on, uh, verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved him his own who were in the world he loved them to the end will you be a disciple maker you made a list of ten folks yesterday that are on your top ten list of people to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ will you love them and will you let that love carry you into these kinds of actions and activities the second thing I wanted you to see in this passage uh, is knowing, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands, that he come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. That's saying to me that Jesus believed in the sovereignty of the Father. I can get down and wash you guys' dirty feet, Jesus said, because my Father's in charge. It's not about you, and it's not about your feet, and it's not about me. Uh, it's about the Father, and so the sovereignty of God comes out here, and that's what what I was seeing as a jumping off point. We can lose, we can lose in this disciple making work, in the in the temporary. We can come up short for a day or two, but we continue, we persist because we know that God is ultimately in charge. The sovereignty of God is the issue. Uh, where do we want to go? I here's what I want you to see as you go serve and humility and service are the antidotes to narcissism i don't know that this has come together just quite the way i'd hoped it would but let me try to summarize we live in a very very narcissistic culture uh, the ac- social science experts say the most narcissistic culture that's ever existed they're putting some numbers on it and that's going to make you and your job of winning people to discipleship even more difficult we're calling people out of that mentality out of that worldview, to a different approach a different way of life and jesus showed us that it's humility and service that will perform that that will bring them with us that's i again what wh- what else needs to be said crew Yes, ma'am, real loud.
0: right and they're,
1: you know, not looking to God right in our society and i think it really makes you focus on people instead of yeah and and our focus she's suggesting that any focus on people rather than a focus on the lord jesus christ is a focus that isn't going to isn't going to be successful and she's absolutely right uh, as we go and serve as we go and serve we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ humility and his service that's why we go if we focus uh, only on other folks uh, we'll come up short one of my superintendents early in my ministry uh, suggested to me if you base your ministry on need you'll burn yourself out in about three years base your ministry on call and I th- that's similar I think to what you're saying who's God calling you to disciple will you love them will you go and serve them
3: I just wanted to ask um, if we in the narcissistic world become servants, we are going to be used and stepped on and abused. Crucified, probably. And taken advantage of. How do we as Christians be walk in humility and service and yet not let ourselves be? Do we, you know, do we let ourselves just be? T- trampled on or how do we
1: handle that what did jesus say what did he do <laughs> <laughs> I, we he can dialogue or, I you mean or you can take it as a rhetorical question.
3: i mean he let himself
1: go to the cross and he die yeah he was crucified so i think if we do what i'm suggesting this morning we will be crucified by the culture and by the society and that's what it's going to take to make the next generation of disciples just like I, I heard in the tag end of your last session, we've we've done we've done too much, too long, of calling people to victory. We need to tell them the truth. We're being called to a life of suffering and service. Are you willing to pay the price? Yes. yes.
5: Um, I think in this world today we have a lot of cynicism. Cynicism, okay. And I think that um, if we if we d- this this um whole organization is as organization of service, and I noticed that people are giving like for instance, Marie and I would walk down we were walking to the to the Bible study, and it was like almost like a mile long, okay right away there was somebody there, a staff member to to give us a ride there, otherwise we would would have had to yeah. walk a mile down you know um there, but they were right there, and that's called service, okay um they they were serving cookies and coffee and water that's called service yes. i think that's what jesus means he, you know giving being right there for someone right. not not thursday or saturday but right now right this minute and note,
1: and notice that in this culture that is mm-hmm. all that we have described it as in these few moments in this culture the folks that you notice are the servants
5: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: And they I make it, and they make a difference. And, and the they and make you want to be more like them. Exactly. And and that that ultimately will be our victory. Last last word. Before Ellen passes out over the dinner table. Last word. Thank you. I'm
4: kind of feeling like it's a case by case seeking God in this because if the if you're dealing with a very narcissistic person and they say okay, you gave, give me more, give me more. Is that really pointing them to Jesus? Or is that fueling the narcissism? So I think that setting that example and saying this is the life that it's about is maybe more than an important calling to be seeking each situation, each thing rather than just saying i will serve i will serve i will continue to meet your needs um, because that may right. be not what is really right going to be the best and
1: and that's what that's why i think it's important to draw the distinction that jesus jesus act here in john is not about dirty feet i think we could go wash feet forever and not accomplish what he wants us to accomplish it's not about giving folks what they want necessarily. It's about giving folks what they need.
2: Uh, I, I have one question. Is it very hard to get someone to realize that this is the kind of person they
1: are? Yeah. Impossible. impossible. So self-reflection in my experience uh, and I give the narcissistic personality inventory to all of my classes and then we talk about it and I've had I've had young people who score a 40, which is the highest you could score on the inventory. And I've had them walk out angry because they think I'm calling them some kind of name. So, yeah, I my experience is uh, it's very, very difficult to get people to recognize the narcissism in themselves. Um, Hence, back to our first session, evaluate your own discipleship and then go make disciples.
0: We're called to make disciples, not change people. That's up to that's up to the Lord. Um, I know that there were other hands. I saw their eyes and, and and all. But we do need to. Uh, we have children that we have to go and, and retrieve. If you have a thought that you want to share with Blake, are you st- hanging around for just a little bit? I'll be here, so uh, you can you can see him. I made a mistake. We do not need volunteer. I know, shocking, right? We do not need volunteers for the children's department tonight. The impact has already covered that, the youth, the teens. So we need them for tomorrow night, okay? So that was Thursday night. So if you came up to me and said, then you get to just stay put in worship, and we'll deal with that tomorrow.
1: Narcissists never admit that they're wrong, so you've just cleared your name.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in ju- yes? Yes? We don't need volunteers
2: for the hymn at 2.15 right here.
0: We just Singers. We need people wanting to come and worship the Lord through good old-fashioned hymn sing this afternoon and out on the relay. If you want to volunteer a little bit of time there out at the relay to just help set up and maybe work a, a timer if you want to do that, show up at 1.30 out here. We can use just a few extra hands out there. Did I do good? Okay. Skedaddle. <laughs> In the name of Jesus, skedaddle. <laughs>